welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. All right, today uh, we are going to hopefully very briefly wrap up talking about uh, the human body and how we study it as archaeologists. And before we get on to diet and subsistence, which is one of my favorite topics because we get to talk about the advent of farming and how we eat food. I like food. You like food. Everybody likes food. Um, if I were nicer, no, I'm plenty nice. If I had more time, money, and energy, I'd be baking you all kinds of paleo foods and that door opened back up. Could you grab that, please? Um, who knows? Maybe I'll have some fun. I know I at least have one fun uh, guest speaker coming in. Uh, either Wednesday or Monday, so we'll see where we get in terms of the um, in terms of the lecture. Okay, so um, back to the body. Uh, we can see stress on the body. I mentioned if you're a muscle muscly person, um, that puts extra stress on your bones, makes them thicker. The muscle attachments get larger. Um, we can also see it through teeth. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I would open like a bag of chips with my teeth, and my mom would say, "That's not why God gave you teeth." Well, sorry, Mom, but actually, uh, teeth have been used as tools for thousands of years, millions of years. Uh, and we see the wear patterns on the teeth. For example, we know that it was common for uh, Neanderthals to eat meat by, and other people, to eat meat by taking a chunk and then cutting it with a knife right off. And sometimes they would catch their teeth. And so they would have like lateral chips on their teeth. So you could like tell how they were eating because of the wear on their teeth, which is pretty awesome. Um, and also a pretty badass way to eat meat, if you ask me. Try that at your next dinner party, especially if it's with you know potential in-laws or you know your significant other's family. Just big old steak and rawr. That's how the Neanderthals did it. There you go. Um, oh, uh, also uh, childbirth. If you are a uh, person of the female persuasion and you have a child, uh, your pelvis will be permanently scarred in a way that uh, later archaeologists will be able to know that you were a mother, or at least um, that you were close to giving birth. There's some hormonal changes, uh, my favorite among which is relaxin, which is like the best name for a um, hormone. It makes your, the ligaments and things that hold your pelvis together, it's actually three bones, the ligaments relax, and there's a notch that develops, so you can tell if you're a mother. Why did that go away? Okay, I guess I'm missing something on that page. Uh, we can also see evidence of disease, which was uh, much more prevalent way back in the day. And we can, even though a lot of diseases affect soft tissue, we can still see evidence of them uh, because they can have effects on our bones. Uh, or if you are well preserved, things like ringworm, uh, leprosy, lice, um, and what's called Chagas disease. Chagas disease uh, does, uh, can do different things. One of them is shut down your colon. So you basically, all your food for like about a month builds up in your intestines. And then eventually your t intestines burst spilling um, 
half-digested and rotten food into your, in, in, into your uh, stomach cavity, and then you die. So not a good one. Uh, still exists today, so hooray for that. Um, there are m traces of these things we can often see, even um, after death. Um, poisoning from uh, different um, mercury, lead, arsenic can also show up in the bones and in the hair especially. Cancer, uh, tuberculosis, other diseases, again, especially a disease that you have for a while, is more likely to show up um, in your body. Uh, skeletal tissue, obviously we have things like violence and accidents. Has anyone here had broken bones before? A couple people, yeah. I notice mostly the guys, not that it's always a gendered thing, but um, <laughs> the death rate among, uh, even today, like in, our, in America, the death rate for young boys is higher than young girls, and that is attributed to accidents. Now, you can say, is that nurture versus nature? Do people encourage boys to go be more aggressively playing and doing things that are slightly more dangerous? I think there's a big societal component to that. Um, I'm not saying it's inborn in all um, males versus females. I think there's a lot of societal things there. Uh, here is a fun little video we have from England. Oops. Your spine should not look like that usually, so, so you know.
Richard III, you can read more about him uh, at, your, uh, at your leisure, uh, involved in a civil war type thing in England, and uh, as you can see, got chopped to bits. Okay, uh, only a flesh wound. Uh, you can also see, like I said before, uh, diseases like uh, leprosy, um, there are certain um, uh, markers at tuberculosis, also uh, nutritional deficiencies that will show up. Uh, anemia, things like long-term systemic anemia, uh, scurvy, right? Lack of uh, certain vitamins leads to a bowing of your bones and things like rickets. Uh, lack of vitamin D, things like that uh, will show up on your bones eventually. Um, then we have things like cultural practices. Remember I was trying to briefly uh, describe the deformation of skulls. So here's a deformed skull. Uh, here's where the boards would have gone to uh, deform these baby skulls, right? Um, and again, I want to stress that unless you're putting undue pressure on the skull of a baby, and again, please don't do this at home. Um, I just have to say, I just have to say that because uh, uh, unless you put undue pressure, or you're actually like crush something, uh, a gentle pressure will uh, allow the plastic or the flexible brain to grow into whatever space is available to it. Uh, here we have uh, teeth that are filed and sharpened and given these little dentate points. Here we have jade beads in, embedded into the incisors. Here are more jade beads in, embedded into incisors. And before you think, wow, what weirdos, remember that we in our society have you know, uh, nose jobs, um, and then a lot of soft tissue changes that will do to our bodies. Calf implants are one of my favorites. I, I calf implants, okay. Sorry, I don't want to offend anyone here with calf implants. Um, but there are lots of things that we do to our own bodies that are a little mm, unusual. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't judge too harshly. Um, 
Other materials belie uh, disease and evidence, such as coprolites, which remember are the uh, fossilized uh, fecal matter or uh, well-preserved fecal matter from a long time ago. You can see things like tapeworm, ringworm, whipworm. Uh, so on the left, you have a picture of actual coprolites. And here on the right, here's a bakery that actually makes poo-shaped um, baked goods, which I think are actually kind of fun. Um, and, you know, maybe that's what I'll make you uh, for a surprise snack. Some uh, poo donuts. Okay. Um, we can see we're going to start talking about um, diet uh, and subsistence in a minute. Uh, but one of the ways that we can get at nutrition through the human body is looking at the marks left on it. And usually, um, most marks left on the human body uh, from nutrition are uh, def uh, deficiencies before agriculture. And we'll talk about this more later on. Um, human beings lived in small bands of mm, a few to a couple dozen people. They traveled across the landscape, eating over a wide variety of plants and animals, dozens, dozens of plants and animals. Then, when we became sedentary agriculturalists, we concentrated on a few plants and a couple animals. And so, uh, that wide variety of uh, diets that we had before uh, have become constrained, and sometimes that resulted in malnutrition because you're not getting enough of certain vitamins. One way that we can see this, um, your teeth are a good marker of your nutrition when you're growing up, when you're forming teeth, uh, so, you know, adolescence. And teeth grow almost daily. Uh, if you read that article that I pointed out to you, it showed you even more examples of this where um, the growth rings, kind of like trees on your teeth, can become interrupted by periods of famine. If your body is concerned about staying alive, it doesn't have extra energy to grow you nice, smooth teeth. Um, you can also see this on long bones. Remember how I said it grows on the ends uh, by that growth plate? And so as it's growing, this example, this um, long bone that's been cut in half, there were periods that growth paused. So they'd be growing, 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 pause, growing, 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 pause, growing, 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 pause. And they're very nicely spaced, which makes me suggest or think that that might be a seasonal, perhaps this time of year, when um, food is generally at its lowest point for most pre-industrial peoples. Maybe they had a spring, uh, a, a early spring uh, lack of food. And here you can see these almost daily growth lines here, the really fine lines, those are almost daily growth rings. And then here we have a couple instances of um, lack of nutrition. So your teeth are wonderful because they're well-preserved. They're one of the hardest bones in the body. They're most likely to last longer than any other part of your body. And so it's lucky that they can provide us such great evidence about the past. Um, the nice thing about comparing ancient diets is we can look at comparisons between people because when you get into societies where people are ranked, you can often see differences in the nutritional content uh, or upkeep of bodies where uh, higher ranked people generally have a wider diversity of foods brought in from farther away. We can see that through their bodies because different foods have um, unique chemical traces. And so seafood, if you live mostly on a seafood diet, it's going to put that signature into your body. Uh, if you mostly live on terrestrial plants and animals, that's going to have a 
different uh, effect on your body. And uh, the saying that you are what you eat is applicable here because if you think about it, if you're living in an area, say, of limestone and all the soil there is built up uh, out of limestone and degraded limestone, um, all the plants are going to have a lot more of that limestone signature because they're only, they're absorbing all of the nutrients that they can from what's available. And then the animals eat those plants, they are then absorbing those nutrients. And so think of a time before we had, you know, food being brought in from California or China or wherever, you're going to be what you, you're going to eat the local environment, and so your body is going to be made up of the elements in the ratio that is around you. And so if you grow up one place, bones that are formed when you're a kid will have one, um, one regional signature, and then when you move somewhere else, as an adult, for example, your more recent bones are going to have a different signature. Uh, we can see during the advent of agriculture, uh, people's teeth really started to degrade because they started eating a lot softer foods, higher in carbohydrates and sugars. Ooh, carbs, ooh. Um, they didn't know about Atkins or whatever the fad diet is today. Um, and uh, our teeth um, bore the brunt of that because if you're eating soft, chewy stuff, high in sugars, the bacterial growth in your mouth, as this article pointed out, um, will really uh, do a number on, on your teeth, and dental cavities really blew up at that point. Okay. So demographics are the study of you know, population, rises of population, falls in populations, disease, uh, mortality rates, uh, birth rates, death rates, all these things are understood under the study of demography, or under demography, which is the study of demographics. Um, so we, as archaeologists, often engage in what's called paleo-demographic studies, which is basically reconstructing ancient population levels and characteristics. And so really common things that we look for are life expectancy, population size, uh, are the two big ones. Um, sometimes we look at uh, male-female uh, differences in these things. Um, we can't get as fine-toothed as you can with asking people today uh, questions and filling out demographic surveys, but we do what we can. Um, one of the ways, there are two primary ways that we estimate populations uh, based on bones. There are other ways to estimate populations, but MNI is minimum number of individuals. Minimum number of individuals. The way that you calculate the minimum number of individuals is, let's say we have a mass grave. And when you're exhuming that mass grave, you find all the bones jumbled. So you can't look at you know, discrete bodies or anything. You say, OK, fine. Well, all we're going to end up with at the end of this is a tally of bone types. So we're going to say left femur, right femur. Uh, right tibia, left tibia, and on and on for all the 206 bones or whatever in your body. There's 208, 206. Depends how many have fused, actually. It changes through your life. Anyway, so you count up all these uh, bones, and let's say you have, you know, 42 left femurs and 38 right femurs and 33 tibia, or right tibia, and 37 left tibia. Well, 
the minimum number of people to come up with this sort of distribution is 42. Because although some of you may claim that you have two left feet when you dance, you don't actually have two left feet. Therefore, there is only, you have to have at least 42 people if you have 42 left femurs. Does that make sense? You can't have less than 42 because you have 42 of one type of bone from one side, right? We can't add these two together because 38 of these uh, left femurs might be corresponding to these right femurs, and then we're just missing four right femurs. That could be the case. But so basically, the minimum number of indi individuals is the maximum number of one type of bone within your sample. So you can use this for all kinds of things. A lot of times it's used in trash pits to figure out how many sheep a, a culture ate over a set amount of time, things like that. And they'll say, oh, we have at least 37 sheep. They'll have an MNI of X. You'll see that all the time in archaeological literature. That's what it means, the minimum number of individuals. Um, NISP is number of um, identified species present, or specimens present, sorry, or um, yeah, number of identified specimens present. This is basically um, you add up all the bones. So in this case, we would add up all 208 bones or whatever, uh, 200 types of bones. And we get some number for the sake of argument, just because it's going to make the math a lot easier. We end up with 208,000 bones. Well, what you do then is you divide it by the total number of bones in the body. Now, see, I said 208. Let's say 206, sorry. It's been a while. Um, so it's obviously 1,000 in that case, and it never comes out that clean. Um, so we can say that is the total number of, of individuals there. It's often misleading because we don't necessarily know that all the bones are represented. Some bones break. Do you count the top half of a femur and the bottom half of a femur? How do you count that if they're not the same? Things like that. It can be a little. It's not nearly. NISP is rarely, if ever, used. MNI is by far, like nine out of 10 times, that's what you'll see. You could also weigh all the bones and say, well, what does an average skeleton weigh? And then all the weight bones divided by the average weight of a skeleton for that animal could give you an estimate. There are different ways to do it. But MNI is by far the most common. OK. Let us. Uh, end the discussion of bodies there. Does anyone have any questions before we move on to diet and subsistence? No questions? All right. Let's see here. Diet and subsistence. All right. This will. I'm not going to be totally redundant, but you can recall uh, that we have kind of talked about the same ideas or the same uh, sorts of evidence uh, when we talked about the reconstruction of the environment, where we discussed um, how we were able to use um, pollen to find what plants were available, things like that. Um, and we just talked about evidence from people that tell you about their diet and also evidence from animals. Uh, that tell you not only about the animals, but if people were eating and things like that. So we, we're going to be drawing upon things we already know 
and so I'm not going to spend as much time on them. Um, much of the evidence for ancient diet comes from plants. Uh, unfortunately, plants don't have uh, bones like animals do that last as long, so often it's much more difficult uh, to track down um, how much plants were eating, although most societies were probably eating the majority of their calories from plants. It's just harder to see in the environment. So you might um, think, for example, about the stereotype of you know, cavemen going out of the cave and hunting and bringing back some, I don't know, uh, weird cave animal uh, to his uh, mate and children sitting around the fire just waiting for daddy to come home with the dead animal. Um, that's not only is that a rather outdated and uh, basically a sexist uh, view of things that kind of developed in the 1950s, which if you look at the um, sitcoms of the 1950s, you see things like, what was it, uh, Donna Reed and Father Knows Best and like all these really like, you know, nuclear family 1950s, you know, father's in charge, the mother never asked questions sort of thing. So that it grew out of that same time or before, very patriarchal. Um, and then once society got to the, uh, what's the word, the more women's lib uh, um, and second wave feminism uh, really picked up, we started moving from the man, the hunter model to the woman, the gatherer model, where we found that actually most of the calories came from gathering and gathering in most societies was primarily done by women, although men certainly helped and children often helped. So instead of that picture of the poor uh, mate and children waiting in the cave, it was very much more likely that the husband, husband, the, the, the male figure in this uh, cave nuclear family that I've made up, uh, would be hanging around the fire for mm, two out of three days, not doing much, and then would go hunt for a day, uh, while the, um, the uh, female of the equation would be spending mm, three to four hours a day out picking berries and plants and leaves and things, uh, uh, digging up roots and other uh, gathering activities uh, and bringing those back and that's what they'd be eating on the day-to-day -day level. And then when they had meat, they'd eat it, but the day-to-day -day food was really brought in by, by the mother. Um, there's exceptions to every rule, but that's the general uh, tendency. It's not hard and fast. That's based on um, survey of hunter-gatherers across the world, um, both recently um, and anytime we can identify the, the uh, sex of the individual doing the different jobs. So um, again, that's the average tendency, but not always the case. Um, see, today we like to really um, argue for complete gender equality. Um, many societies would see genders not, so I know that, <laughs> This term has really bad connotations in, uh, in the US for good reason, but separate but equal, <sighs> terrible phrase. Uh, but in a lot of societies, the idea that men and women are not the same, they're not equal, but they're both necessary halves to a family. Like uh, in the Maya world where I've worked, a lot of people, um, there's this guy, this older guy who's a bachelor, and the guys would all say, but who makes his tortillas? Right? That was like the euphemism for like, how does he live? Who makes his tortillas? And then there was a woman whose husband had left her, and they said, well, who grows her corn? Like that's what they would say as like a phrase, like, oh, but, but who grows her corn, right? So 
if they weren't working together, they were incomplete. So they weren't really seen as individuals that are complete and upstanding individuals. They were half of an equation. So they were separate entities that came together to make one cohesive social unit. Eh, that's another. That's that's very likely how things were thought of. Um, although there's also a lot of evidence for polygamy, where one um, one male would have multiple female partners at the same time. That seems to be pretty common before the advent of agriculture and even afterwards. So when politicians say one type of uh, relationship is natural, they haven't had my class. Because uh, what's natural is a wide variety of things. Uh, not saying that I personally want to engage in all of them. I'm just saying they're out there and they're well accepted member parts of all kinds of uh, societies. So hold on to your horses there, Mr. or Mrs. Politician. Hey, how about we talk about the past evidence of plant diet before I get way too far off the edge of my soapbox. Okay, uh, paleoethnobotany is exactly what the term says. Paleo, old, ethno, uh, a society, botany. So how an ancient society uses plants. Um, one way that we can get evidence from uh, archaeological remains is through what's called flotation. So these uh, folks here are playing with flotation tanks. Kind of works under the principle that um, different types of organic materials will float or sink. Seeds often will sink. If so, if you have uh, excavated, usually we take a constant volume sample, a CVS, uh, from a unit of one liter of soil, and then you dump that in this bin of water and you agitate it. They have an automatic agitator here where they blow water pressure through and it stirs everything up. The light fraction floats and gets skimmed off by a, excuse me, through a filter here, and the heavy fraction sinks. That often contains seeds and other things. Um, so you can see here the um, sample is put in, the sludge comes down, the heavy fraction's here, um, the light fraction, fraction flows off, and more can settle out here. And so you'd have a, like a separation system, kind of like a filter system. And then you pull that out, you dry it, and you look at it under a microscope or mag magnification, and you can get to uh, understand some of the plants and animals. That were um, that were in use. Uh, often we use observations from anthropologists to draw parallel conclusions. Um, you know, we can look at how people today use those same plants and animals in similar uh, social situations, whether it's a hunter-gatherer or a basic agriculturalist. Um, now you have to be careful because you can't just say, "Oh, we're finding yams." In the, in the archaeological record. And there's a society today that uses yams as kind of a currency, and you have to build up a whole bunch of a whole silo of yams to trade to the father of the, of the person you would like to marry. So that's what they were doing here. Well, whoa, that's a possibility, sure. But that's not necessarily a one-for-one -one correlation, because the people today that are trading yams uh, for a dowry uh, have been under thousands of years of cultural evolution. Um, so you can't say they're doing the same thing. It's possible and likely, but you can't say it for sure until you have more evidence. So people today and in the recent past 
that have used plants and animals in a certain way. That shows us the variety of things that are possible in the past. Doesn't mean other things aren't possible, but it shows us a good bet of what is possible, and then from there we can extrapolate uh, very carefully. Uh, again, we have, uh, just like before, I talked about macrobotanical remains. These are things that are large enough to see mostly with your um, bare uh, eye, so carbonized corn for example, or carbonized seeds that you could sort without much magnification. A hand lens doesn't really count. And then we have the microbot, or the microbotanical remains, where you actually have to use a microscope to count pollen or things like that. So here we have taxa by, by counts. We have nutshells, maize, cupule, so different bits of the maize kernel, weedy cultigens, legumes, grasses, fleshy fruits, It's a fun way to say it and fleshy fruits, right? You might find apple seeds. Then you know the rest of the apple was probably there unless they're just eating apple seeds, which would be weird. Um, we can go back to our pond cores and our um, pollen that's trapped in the pond cores to look at what sorts of plants are in the, in the area, right? So in, um, in, Latin, or in Latin America and the Maya area, remember we've already talked about post-classic, classic, pre-classic. Pre you can see the forest taxa, the forest species get cut down, and grasses uh, spring up, weeds spring up, and we get corn, right? So we know that corn um, is a pretty common domesticate at this time, right? So uh, that's one of the ways that I can say that uh, earliest corn evidence is 5100 BC, and that we have to, st we start having cities or at least small towns. Uh, sedentary towns by 2500. It's because of this microbotanical evidence. We also see chemical residue and plant impressions. Um, so soft pottery often uh, will have remains of, because you know, there are people that are, I don't want to call them sloppy, that's kind of a negative connotation. People that had bits of plants all over because bits of plants get everywhere. Um, and so sometimes they would get incorporated into, you can see kind of like impressions of some sort of vegetal material there. Um, you can also tell by the types of pottery that's made. Sometimes they're preparation vessels for specific types of food, but that's a little. Um, you can see bits of grain impressed into uh, tiles here, right? There's lots of um, fun ways that we can get indirect evidence. Oh. In terms of chemical residues, we got things like protein uh, or DNA even, which is kind of fun. Uh, tools and processing equipment. It took a lot of tools and a lot of equipment uh, to make uh, agricultural food accessible to us. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that sedentary agriculture is so such a radical change. If you're a hunter-gatherer, right, if you go backpacking for spring break and you're gone for seven days in the wilderness, you're going to bring what you can carry, or at least what you could like put on top of a horse and make the horse carry. When people became sedentary agriculturalists and they built houses to keep their stuff in, they could get more stuff and they didn't have to throw it away. So people built up more specialized tools. So um, one of the problems with uh, wheat and other cultigens and uh, this is one of the reasons that they weren't really as highly utilized by hunter-gatherers, is that if you just eat, for example, flax seeds. Flax are, so I used to work at a bakery. 
um, baking bread, and we had flax seeds that we would grind up into our multigrain loaf. And people would sometimes complain, it says flaxseed, but I don't see any flax seeds. So we had to throw like a handful of unground flaxseed into the bread, which is ridiculous because your body cannot open up a flaxseed. So any flaxseeds that aren't ground in our bread will pass right through you. So we grind them up. Similar thing to wheat. Um, to get wheat from the plant in the field after harvesting it, you have to thresh it meaning uh, basically beat it with a flail until the wheat berries come off. Then you rake to remove the straw. Then you winnow the uh, berries to remove the chaff, which is the, like, the husk on the outside of the berry. Then you have to sieve it to separate out even more of the, um, the chaff. You roast it. Uh, you pound it. Winnow it again to get rid of more of the light stuff that blows. Winnowing, by the way, if, in case you don't know, um, so the wheat uh, seed is actually, you know, it's kind of heavy uh, relative to its size. And then the chaff, the husk that goes around it is light. So when you toss it up in the air, the wind blows the leaf, the husk away, and the berries fall back right into your, your, winnowing, um, your winnowing dish. Anyway, so then you roast them, you pound them, you winnow some more, you sieve, you sieve, dry them and store them and hope that the bugs don't get them. And there's also hand sorting. And then you mill them into flour. So you can't do all that as a hunter-gatherer. Not only that, who's going to carry around bags of unprocessed wheat berries, right? Ridiculous. So um, it, it, it was a big change for us to concentrate so heavily on a couple of plants. And obviously, every one of these steps is going to leave a trace archaeologically, which is great for us. Um, here is something, this sled-looking thing would uh, do some of the threshing and some of the raking. Uh, basically what it is, it's a, it's a sled with uh, squares cut in the bottom, and then you jam stones in there to make kind of like a rough, like a giant thing of sandpaper. It's like blown up sandpaper. And then you probably, as you know, like kids would probably sit on it. And then dad or mom would walk around with the donkey pulling this thing around all of their, their wheat spread out on the ground, and it would break it apart and release those wheat kernels. Here's a mono and a matate, a grinding stone, and the stone on which it's ground uh, for corn from Mesoamerica. Super common. Um, here's a winnowing fork. Remember, winnowing is here, throwing the uh, wheat berries up in the air. The chaff blows away. Here's a grain scoop. Here are some uh, booze, booze-making equipment uh, from, I believe those are Egyptian, but I could be wrong. Um, another piece of evidence are residues. So, you know, let's say you're not as fastidious about uh, washing your pieces of uh, dishes every day. I don't know. College students, notoriously kind of messy. So there you go. Uh, but if you're cooking uh, in a pot over fire, think of that caked on grease that you're, or caked on um, burned residue you're going to get on the inside of your container, be it pottery, be it uh, st um, yeah, soapstone, I guess, or, um, or metal. So we might find residues from the plants there. And like I said, alcohol. Um, the nice thing about alcohol is it has a lot of very specific vessels and uh, tools, right? Um, 
people think that you're quite the uh, uncouth oaf if you're drinking wine out of anything but a uh, wine glass, right? You know, if you're refilling your Yahtzee shaker with wine, people are going to look at you funny. Sorry, I stole that from Jim Gaffigan. That's not mine. Um, so not only vessels, but also a lot of the processing that's needed for, uh, for alcohol, you know, uh, grain um, sieves uh, to separate out uh, the bodies of grape or the, um, the uh, barley malt and all those different things to make uh, beer. The different vats, the different storage vessels, uh, all different. They often leave residues, especially wine. Think of wine stains. Great for archaeology because it leaves stains um, on a lot of the vessels that held wine for a long time. So uh, alcohol, as you will read in an article, the Katz article, uh, was perhaps, some people will argue, the primary reason for sedentism not baking bread and hanging out and having more children. No, no, no. People became sedentary and grew farms and uh, grain and things so that they could make alcohol, because you can't make alcohol when you're walking around or moving around as mobile hunter-gatherers. You can only make alcohol when you're stationary, and people like alcohol. So maybe that's why they became agriculturalists. OK, that is. One argument that I think is a lot of fun to make, I don't know if it is 100% true. Uh, there are lots of reasons for uh, sedentism that we're going to get into in a little bit. Um, there are lots of uh, other, Egypt has a lot of great like dioramas. Egyptians were nuts for dioramas. Like, like make me dioramas because um, instead of putting an entire brewery in your tomb, which you know, kind of awkward to put an entire brewery in your, um, in your tomb. You're not going to have room for your, uh, your boats and all the, your chests of clothing and you know, your servants and all the other things that you have to get in your tomb. So what you do instead is you put in a diorama. And then you have a spiritual brewery. So on the other side of the uh, afterlife, you'll have that brewery so you can you know, sit around and drink your honey wine or whatever. Um, the Egyptians also did a lot of uh, imagery uh, showing how alcohol was enjoyed and made. Um, so we know quite a lot about Egyptian um, brewing techniques. Uh, there's actually a brewery called Dogfish Head that I believe recreated an Egyptian beer. Ooh, it's not, probably not very palatable, actually. Uh, but gets you drunk, so that's what's important, I guess. Um, the UW in um, Milwaukee actually recreated uh, a, I think it's a Scandinavian uh, alcoholic beverage. Oh, I have to email them because I'm going to talk to them. Um, so um, some of the information we have about past plant use involves seasonality because you know plants are rather seasonal uh, items. We know that people, at the beginning of agriculture, we have hunter-gatherers who are traveling across the landscape. And what they first started out as doing was called just you know, mobile hunter-gathering. Um, they were not sedentary, or sedentary is just another word for stationary. And so you know, they would go across the landscape looking for food. Um, as time progressed, people started practicing what's called seasonal sedentism. Let me 
see what's next. Yeah. Seasonal sedentism means that you would go between different camps. Um, and you would, you know, in the spring, you'd go to one camp. You know, here you'd go to like the maple sugaring camp uh, and whatever else was uh, happening in the spring. In the summer, you'd go to maybe the berry camp or wherever uh, the summer uh, resources were available for you. In the fall, you might go to a hunting camp uh, where there are lots, or acorn camp, you know, where there are lots of acorns. And in the winter, perhaps a better hunting ground because um, animals might be your best bet for food in the winter months. And so each year you would go to the same places, or at least same areas. Um, over time, people probably started building up semi-permanent houses or um, small structures. And, you know, uh, over time, people would start to kind of push back on the plants that were there that were maybe encroaching on the plants that they wanted. So let's say there's a lot of berry bushes around your summer camp, and the berry bushes are constantly competing with, oh, I don't know, poplar or some other plant that's growing up. Well, maybe you would, you know, spend a couple of days each year, like, chopping down the poplars and expanding the space of the berries so you'd get more berries each year. Maybe in the spring if you're doing... I don't know, uh, maple syruping, you encourage the growth of maple trees and trample down the other ones in the fall. You know, acorns, same thing with oak trees, whatever. So in the areas that we first see domestication, which is largely what's called the fertile crescent, we see this happening where people start to, in the summer and fall, start to use what we know today as our primary cultigens, uh, like wheat, it's a big one, rye, spelt, oats, these were all like just naturally, you know, just wild, uh, living on what they're called the, the hilly flanks, the, uh, the sides of the Fertile Crescent where they were just grasslands. And people noticed, hey, these seeds are pretty good, but you got to collect a lot of them. And so maybe they started to form a relationship with these, um, with these uh, plants in the summer and in the fall. They might have grown small, started to do small like uh, gardening on the side, you know, but they would abandon it each season. Well, what happens when, you know, grandpa or grandma gets too old to make the, the round and can't travel anymore? Maybe they stay here all year and, you know, one of the kids or somebody stays with them and then, you know, these folks have to go back occasionally to say, hey, grandpa, how you doing, you know, sort of thing. Um, and they provision him or her with uh, little extra stuff from the fall and winter and spring camp, whatever. They start staying in the summer camp, for example, longer. Well, this you know, able-bodied person might very well then start expanding the garden because they're going to be there all year. They might start working a little more intensely on cultivating some of these wild plants that they use. Over time, this continues the cultivation and the uh, preferential treatment, the protection of these plants. Uh, becomes more intense. They start picking the ones that are better and you know selecting the berry bushes that give you the best berries, the largest berries, the tastiest berries. Same thing with the, um, with the wheat. You pick the biggest, the best wheat. And over time what happens, instead of going between these seasonal rounds over many generations, this might start to change where you would go out and do a seasonal fall collection and then bring it back to your permanent 
permanent house, right? And in the winter, you go to the hunting grounds and you bring back what you've hunted in the spring and the summer, right? Um, and then you start collecting, bringing this back, but you have a permanent place where you're starting to build up and use the same plants more intensively in this area. That's one way that uh, the beginning of domestication uh, possibly started. Now, the social push to do that, I said, you know, grandpa gets sick. There are a couple of different reasons for why this might have happened, and we're going to talk about specific hypotheses next time, and we'll have to end it there. And Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.